Welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process, and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. If this is your first time listening after our Zine Quest extravaganza, welcome to the podcast. Normally our interviews are a bit longer and more in-depth than my ZineQuest contributions, and we dive a bit more into what it's like to be a designer or creator in the indie tabletop role-playing game space. We also release every two weeks instead of every day, which is a slightly more manageable schedule. I try to interview a wide range of indie notables, but if you can think of someone you'd like to hear, please hit me up through our website or through Twitter. As you know, I'd love dearly to hear from you. This week, our interview is with Philip of Audioalia Publishing. As someone from outside the Anglophone sphere, Philip's view of the scene is very different, and his Croatian cultural background colours this experience very uniquely. Here we talk about so many topics, but ostensibly it's about Domain's Horror, an incredible role-playing game that genuinely puts narrative tools at the very forefront. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So, today we're talking to Philip of Audioalia Publishing. Hi there, Philip, and welcome to the podcast. Hi there, thank you for having me on the podcast. And we finally made it to our actual date, <laughs> after a few setbacks. We did, yeah. After a few setbacks, including a completely lost recording session, which was very disappointing because we were having a very interesting conversation. So I'm yeah, hoping that we'll be able to reproduce that today. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, and hopefully we won't have to talk about the earthquakes and the whole situation that delayed this little session. But yeah, okay, let's just start. Let's just start, okay. Um, Philip, would you like to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game scene? Well, sure, I'm Philip Lonchera. I've been in the tabletop role-playing scene itself for the past... Uh, no, 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 uh, since 95. I don't know how many years that is now. And I've been developing games since 2000. And basically since 2016, I've been starting to work on my own games. So far, I've been mainly working on narrative games... Uh, and I have officially released the Domain's role-playing system. It's a horror, horror game that emulates the narrative structure of a, let's call it, by the fire narration style that you have when you talk to your friends, when you tell a scary story and so on. Yeah, let's lean into that a little bit because I really like Domain's and I, I like the way that you talk about it. So do you want to go into a bit more detail about what Domain's is and what makes it different from other horror games that are out there? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, this will be everything what I think it is different. I don't know how much it is or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Uh, everything has been done till now. The idea is that I've been doing a game that mainly resolves under narrative structure. The thing is that I always thought that rules are basically there to bring something to the game. Why not a narrative? So I decided to, instead of going with like actions, look what creates a narrative what kind of story you can tell, what you get from it, yeah. and incorporate that into the core rules. So I create a game in which the role ends with you gaining or giving your game master narrative prompts that they can use to tell a story. Now, the idea was that a horror game has to have some kind of tension, some kind of antagonism between the player and the game master, but I didn't want to have it as a, let's say, OSR-style uh, players versus GM. Instead, I wanted to have it as a, cooperative type of game let's let's say it that way right but it's a horror game there has to be some kind of setback yeah so yeah that's the point when your game master comes in they act as a negative narrator in the whole game they are there to demonstrate the game's bleak 
downtrodden feeling and the whole emotional load of the game and represented the narrative of the game. So let's say you attempt something in a horror game, let's go with a classic one, you run down the, I don't know, Mossic Pathways, because a certain film is behind you. How does it look in a horror game, in a, let's say, survival horror game on a PS? How does it look on a first-person shooter? How does it look in a horror movie? That was my question, that's how I started shaping it, and I noticed one thing peculiar to all those. There's always some kind of catch. You will have always, like constantly, yeah, some kind of negative thing. Um, the hill will snap, they will trip, there will be something, a branch will snap in the face, and that's some kind. That's the thing I don't want to have in domains. And in the end, I did a little bit of math and calculations to get the yeah. whole system amped towards it, that even with any kind of rule, you will get complications. Now, the complications don't, don't mean you fail at the task itself. Instead, the task gets saucier, let's say that way. So, uh, let's say you do a rule. You agree according to rules. It's, let's say, a survival rule. You run down yeah. the path and you roll. I'm not going to go into roll mechanics, but let's say you just get two successes and one complication. Now, your option is to say, yeah, uh, I'll negate one complication to one success and remove those ties from the game. But... It's urgent, so we're going to take both. And so I, as a player right now, have two narrative prompts. I use the first prompt to actually bring my idea, the thing which I said I would do by rolling, into the game by saying, yeah, I'm using one success to run down fast the mossy path. Now, I've got the second success, which adds some kind of additional narrative. Yeah. And I say, okay, so I run down the mossy path, and I do it so by covering my tracks. Let's say those are two successes. But now, the trick is, I have a complication. So you, yeah. as the game master or overseer in the domain's role-playing system itself, would have one narrative prompt, which could give you some kind of and or yeah. but or such narrative to add to my story. And you could then take that one complication and say, yeah, you run down the mercy path concealing your tracks, but you lose something from your inventory. Yeah. I don't know. There, there are thousands of combinations and basically whatever is appropriate for the task or roll the hand. That's the basic idea. Yeah. Now, I had a few other things which I did, basically trying to emulate this feeling and narrative structure of horror games, horror movies, mainly the survival horror games from the late PS1 and early PS2 era, which I personally found awesome. And yeah. to do that, I noticed that the, the story itself has to be tense, it has to be dramatic. To do that, I, instead of doing some kind of role and so on, gave the overseer threat points. Basically, it's a meta currency they can use to bring into the game various changes. Right. They can use it uh, Silent Hill style to change pathologies in the game. They could introduce NPCs like uh, you can use uh, gym incursions in Numenera and such other games, but it also allows you to do a few things to the roles and basically allow you to set this kind of atmosphere where there's always a looming threat of failure to the player. There is also a trick, um, basically the book itself has a so-called timeline. It's basically things that will happen. Yeah. So unless somebody stops it, you will gain threat. So how is threat gained? Uh, players are actually encouraged to do stupid things. You will see the jocks in horror movies, like old school uh, US-18 slasher movies, checking out the weird-ass uh, sound over there, right? <laughs> and you're you are encouraged to do that. You're encouraged yeah. to go over that. But then there is threat. The GM gets their own little thing. 
uh, going to the forbidden mineshaft, Fred, doing something really stupid, Fred, using abilities, Boom. point to Fred. Now, uh, the trick about this, this can lead to uh, quite problematic things, especially in groups that don't know each other. And to bypass that, uh, especially with the new inc incarnation of domains currently out, uh, not only did we, as in the original version, in, uh, we, oh god, I, uh, include, did I include the safety rule sets and safety tools inside the game in the GM version, no, I even put it face first. So basically when you open the book, the first thing you should see is, hey, this game deals in really heavy stuff. Use safety tools. I think that's important because creating a healthy and secure gaming environment allows you to get a lot of that character bleed, allowing you to actually have that panic attack when your character does something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important in horror games. And um, I don't play a lot of horror games, mostly because I'm not that comfortable with the, the themes. Um, but I like horror films, but I like to be in control of how I watch them. <laughs> like I'm, I'm that person who reads the Wikipedia articles about the horror film before watching it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, 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 I think safety tools are so, so important when you, when you have these spaces, especially as you said, when you're playing it in like potentially convention spaces or, um, at games clubs where you don't necessarily know people that even well. Even at home, even at home. I, I mean, I'm not going to tell everybody about my fears and everything. I mean, my wife knows them, but I don't tell them to my gaming group. I don't feel comfortable about that. But if I have safety tools, I don't have to explain my discomfort. I can just say, yeah, let's stop. And that's one of the most important things, which I think, as you said, uh, consuming horror at your own pace. This is the idea here, because you want to create a safe space. Absolutely, because so much of horror is about loss of control and about loss of, you know, being able to uh, understand the situation around you. And like as a consumer, <laughs> rather than as a protagonist, I want yeah, to be exactly. able to retain some of my own control. Exactly. So it is super important for players and like like big respect for putting that right at the beginning of your book, because a lot of horror writers don't do that. <laughs> and I do not like it. I mean, uh, the horrific part in the game isn't you as the player being scared, it's your character. Uh, in my opinion, a horror game is a game about telling how your character is scared. It doesn't have to be yeah. you as the player scared. Some players don't get scared. I mean, I live in a country with, with countrywide PTSD. And I know a few people who are like, yeah, I'm not scared. Now we can play this. I mean, I've seen that. And I respect that. I mean, it's your choice, but... Some people are really capable of getting scared by everything. But also having a safe environment is a good fostering environment <laughs> to create bleed, which is important. And once you get to the bleed part, you will transfer the fear and bleakness and the utter weight of the situation from a character to yourself. Definitely. I think it sounds pretty cool. I really like the way that you are mechanizing um, the threat and advantages and successes and disadvantages and so on. And like, I'm really on board with all of the way that the mechanics are lined up towards uh, providing that horror mood in play. So yeah, kudos. It sounds really cool. So I think one of the things that we've kind of touched on there is that um, it's being designed in a kind of iterative way. And there are several versions that have been made available over the last few years. At the time of this recording, <laughs> uh, Zine Quest is kind of just finished. It's kind of wrapping up. You know, oh, God, yeah, yeah Zine Quest. Shame that I can't be on it, but yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so Zine Quest is kind of wrapping up, and I got myself into trouble by sort of suggesting um, that Kickstarter is not everything. And this came out of 
what happened with um, Luke Crane, oh God, head yes. of games at Kickstarter, and people suddenly saying, well, actually, this is not the best platform. It's not the most healthy platform for tabletop role-playing games. So I was sort of saying, well, let's do some alternative thinking about how we can crowdfund our games. And one of my biggest inspirations is what you've been doing with Domains. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you've been funding its development? Yeah, okay, so first and foremost, uh, a little background on everything. I'm from Croatia, and due to regulations in my country, and due to the striped regulations in the US, where Kickstarter is situated, I am legally, in full legality, not allowed to use Kickstarter. Anyway, to use Kickstarter is basically great economy. And because of the few things that have happened here, I had to basically say, yeah, I'm not going to do it. And so, in the end, I decided to find alternative ways. Uh, one of those was to use drive to RPG as a crowdsourcing platform. But in the end, it didn't show that much use. It's just actually more useful here due to the way that people consume games there. And I think the problem is that once you put a game in a platform which is not finished and the platform itself itself is used for selling that game, the issue is that that people want a finished game. They want something that's done. They don't want to wait. Now, that was the biggest issue, and I had to invest quite a lot of my personal money. Uh, It's not milk and honey here. I will will disclose everything, and if it's okay, I want to talk in percentages here a bit, because this is a little bit of a hidden part, which people don't know about this. Uh, I've been told over and over, yeah, 2,000 euros is not that much of a sum, why don't you just, I don't know, save up? Yeah, so, uh, over the course of the last two years, I had my game founded to currently, I don't know, I have to check. Second, please. 67.89%. So that's 1,289 euros out of 1,900 euros. That's divisible. Now, the invisible... Which is pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. And I'm actually psyched because I only have to pay 200 euros more to my editor so she can finalize the work and we can be done with that. Uh, nice. Then I have a few more things to settle, uh, mainly translator costs and a few additional things which basically was ramped up, and that would be ending in total 1,900 euros. Now, the invisible costs, and I'm not saying the social media time costs, it, it does, I'm just not going to go into marketing, I'm going to the actual funding, is that I found that over those two years and saved up a lot of my personal money, and out of everything here, my personal investment into this game has been 461 euros. Which means out of those 1,200, let's round up to 1,300, basically one third was me, which is a lot, and I'm only lucky because my job is quite good, but let's say this way, Indian stuff. So the issue was that alongside I had to basically put an entire salary that is common in my country into my game. I just calculated 461 euros is 3,495 kunas. That's the average salary here. That's really a lot. Yeah. And the issue was how to get the money because um, in in tabletop RPGs everything is looked from a specific lens. It's the uh, first world lens. Let's call it this way because I have really, really no better way to say it. Oh, it's an accurate description. Yeah. It's mainly anglophone and. 
Ireland primary, bound to the US, UK and Canada. But okay, so the issue is there mainly that to get, let's say, Kickstarter and any other crowdfunding platform outside game on tabletop, but I will not go into them because I still haven't used that platform. I intend to though. Is that everybody wants a finished game. Now, nobody's willing to pay for an unfinished game, unfortunately. And if you present your game as an ashtray copy, they're really skeptical. It's hard to get money. It is, yeah. Most of my time, I feel like I'm begging for money. <laughs> uh, even though the game is done, it just needs to be edited. It needs, honestly, a sensibility reader. That is my plan, and I'm really hoping to finalize the game and be able to get one. That's one of the invisible costs, because I couldn't afford one initially. But the idea is to get one eventually. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, uh, amongst other things, I've been using Coffee as a platform for crowdfunding, which didn't work so well because it's a tipping platform. It's not much, but it's okay. You you can get some money for it, but using it as a crowdfunding situation was a bit iffy. Mainly, as all in all, I think I had like thirty eight euros out of it, and my personal yeah right. yeah and my personal problem so for the first year. I offered domains for 5 euros, then 7.5 euros, and after a few talks in the industry, as I became more and more known by talking about my game, by talking about my ideas and experiences, I ended up on the game being 15 euros, even though people tell me I should raise it to 25 or more, because the game in itself is a full system and giving you quite a lot of tools. I mean, I kind of agree. <laughs> I think people should charge what they want to charge for their games, you know? There's an interesting intersectional thing there, which is like you want to charge a lot for your game, but also you probably want people in your own country to be able to buy it. And $25 to somebody in America is not the same as $25 to someone in Croatia. I'm okay, uh, give me a second. I've got a calculator up and running. 25 euros, you said. Okay, so that's 190 kunas. For 190 kunas, I could take my wife to a uh, pre-course dinner here with 100% homegrown bio... Uh, clean, whatnot, any kind of bloody adjective you want to add, heart of the beef. In Vienna, <laughs> yeah, in Vienna, a company meal that I was taken to, which I was unstruck, basically constitutes of a single serving of heart of the beef, uh, it's a type of steak, and a bit of mash. It was four and a half thousand euros for ten portions. Right. <laughs> That's considered delicacy. And yeah, we can get it like for bloody 80 kunas. That's less than 10 euros. So, but yeah, the, the exactly that. And the problem is I come from a different geo-sociopolitical environment than most people. I see everything from the lens of everything outside there is costly. And it was really weird when I started calculating things like editors, uh, art and whatnot. When I saw that an average picture that you need, let's say, I you bought the IP and they draw a little black and white picture for you is 25 to 50 euros per picture it's well yeah and besides a try uh, yeah uh, yeah and it's expensive to the point where i'm going to say it this way if a book is over 75 kunas it's considered extra expensive i bought two uh okay so i, I love books i bought two isaac is some of anthology books each for 99 kunas and it was considered extra expensive the, the, so two books for 25 euros yeah I've been so, and example, I'm doing a uh, game in creation called Vraj. Uh, the game itself with a starter box shouldn't be above 20 euros. A starter box should include starter game, so the core rule book, full, not abbreviated rules. We don't do that here. 
It's a bit different. If you buy a game, it should be everything. You can just give them like quick snap rules. The dice needed, miniatures, the map, basically a full starter set for less than 20 euros. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is that like part of it, a huge part of the problem with the scene, and I like massively agree with this, is that um, players, not designers, designers are like fine with this, and that's why the itch scene is slightly more healthy than the DTRPG scene. But players apparently don't like games that aren't finished, as you said, and don't like games that aren't beautifully illustrated, and that you know, heaven forbid, might have one or one or two proofreading problems with them. Okay, I'm gonna fanboy this time. I know this is not about me. I mean, this is about me, not about others, but I'm gonna fanboy White Hack. Have you seen the new White Hack third edition booklet? Sweet Lord, it's minimalistic. It's white space. Like, it's pure white space. It's old school formatted text. It's so gorgeous. I'm actually a print tech and layout designer major. Sweet right. Lord. It, it's so beautiful. I mean, I, I can look at it and just like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, uh, that, that, that's one of the things which most people do not want here. They look at a book and it should be representable. It should be, wow, it should be. They want a D&D book experience. And then when I first compared yeah. the actual D&D book making and quality, uh, sweet Lord. I'm not going to go into that because it's going to be t- nerdy as hell. Uh, <laughs> we like nerdy. Well, it's an elephant in the room, isn't it? It's, the, it's saying, gee... Shouldn't all RPGs look like D&D? And the answer to that is uh, no, because we don't all have the backing of a billion dollar industry behind us. You know, we don't have the backing of Hasbro. We've got, as you said, maybe a month's salary. You know, it's it's rude to game designers to think that everything ought to be as beautiful and as well laid out and as heavily illustrated as Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition and Pathfinder, you know. I mean, uh, art is cool. I know, I know. Don't get me wrong. Art is cool. I like looking at art. It's evocative. It's something that lets you immerse into the game easier. But at the end, do I want a stack of 400 pages, four books at my table? No. Sure. I want a single rule book, dice, and a paper. Uh, and I'm here now just because of my work. Uh, I'm a systems engineer, and I hate electronics at my table. I'm constantly on call. I can't have my phone because any notification is basically a question. Is it private? Is it tabletop stuff? Or is a server burning up? And basically, we do in Croatia play a bit differently. Uh, the newer uh, crowd plays more closer to how, right. let's say, you, with you I mean the Anglosphere plays, but the older crowd is a bit different. Uh, most of the newer crowd have been learning how to play games from watching Crick or Roll and so on, so they've got a bit of a different approach to it. <laughs> Talking about elephants Let's in say rooms, yeah. I'll talk from the old school perspective. We had a bit of a different vibe. I, for example, started in 95 with a half-printed <laughs> fax, to be precise. I don't know if anybody of you heard somebody faxing a Coral book, but we got from the US a faxed uh, advanced second edition D&D rulebook. Part of the PHB, part of the DMG, and a few monster manual scan pages, and we played that, and we had to fill in a lot of gaps. You told me this before, <laughs> and I repeated this story to somebody, and they were they were astounded by this, and I thought that it's such a privileged position to be able to take, you know, to be surprised that this happened. Yeah, it was the post-war moment for us, but okay, okay. So, and we played D and D kind of how we understood it. I mean, I was six, seven. And somebody told me, yeah, this is a game about telling stories. So how, how do you tell stories? In Croatia, we have a way. We call it uh, narratia. 
uh, storytelling. Yeah. Storytelling by us is pričanje priča. It's to tell a story. Uh, narracija is basically recounting. We have a specific way of actually telling a story, which is... we. I don't know if you know that there are two ways to tell a story. There's a so-called childish and then yeah. way, and then there's the evocative and descriptive way. We're always, as children, taught that and then is bad. You should not use it. It's yeah. It's a cultural. It's a cultural thing. It's really bad, and you're taught since your early, early, early age that you shouldn't do it. And we've been playing D and D like that because the rules were wonky. <laughs> I won't lie, it's taco, out of tacos, and but it was then and then and then and then and then game. Uh, I'll be honest, we were reborn the moment we found Fudge. Oh wow! The sixth anniversary edition. Cool. <laughs> how, how you grew up? Time frame. D and D second edition, D and D third edition, D and D third edition torrents. I'm against that now. But at the time, there was no way to get a book. And one book costed around 250 local currency. That is currently 700-something-ish with the inflation counted in. Holy and smokes. At that time, a single book was like 15 to 20 kunas. And a single d book was 200 to 250. Yeah, that was funny. And I'm privileged. I own from that era some 14 books which I bought with my own pocket money. I had enough money to to buy one, up to two books. Basically, we don't get allowances. Uh, Once a year on your birthday, you would get some money to buy whatever you want, because it's your birthday. I spent my money on D&D books. (laughs) Right. So enter the era of ISDN, because everybody had dial-up here. And suddenly torrents and stuff. I'm I'm honestly uh, blushing here, and this, this is a bit awkward for me to speak, because I'm... A real big opponent against torrenting and pirating stuff. By the way, anybody listening to this, if you think you will pirate my stuff, please take a community copy. If there are none left, contact me. I'll give you a community copy. I would rather give you something for free than see the game pirated. Everything's okay. So, uh, back to my shameful past. We found books. Tons of them. First, like, D20 Modern, then stuff, and then stuff, and then stuff, and then Somebody found GURPS, second or third edition. I think it was third. Yeah, solid system. Yeah, okay. No problem with GURPS. <laughs> then somebody found Fudge. Okay. This is super interesting to me because Fudge was one of the first kind of indie games that I discovered as well. <laughs> but on with your story. Now suddenly you go from you've got a plus X or number in whatever skill to you're a good swordsman. Wait, 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 you're telling me. So basically if I can tell a story where I'm a good swordsman and I have to roll for it, it basically just happens. And was whack. I was like, so we can just write a character sheet in a short story type single A4 page. Okay, that was mind-breaking. Till then, characters were like, yeah, you've got like plus five to stealth. You 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 have like sword fighting 11. Uh, you've got two points in this. And at the same time, the other group, the three groups in Barajdin, the town was raised and where I actually live still. One group played D&D because those were the old guys from which we got the scan books and text books. We had my group, which gravitated more towards those freeform, let's call it freeform, narrative games, and the third group gravitated towards White Wolf. So we had two groups which interacted more often because we were teenagers. The other group were college guys, which went off to college to soccer band. Bye-bye. Group dissolved. So we interacted 
at one I mean, you had like Vampire the Masquerade guys and us Fudge guys. And as more time went on, we found more assistance. We learned more. Uh, I'm really, 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 really sad that I found about the Forge this year. I mean, in 2020, I didn't know it existed. Yeah, that's a mood. <laughs> There's a lot of people like that. Yeah, it's sad because you were, you were around in the era when you could have been a member, you know? Yeah, I know, I know. And the worst part, there was the time when I was most prolific as a game designer. Uh, most of my stuff, which I'm currently releasing, is updated and re- revitalized all the stuff. Yeah. It was really, really, really weird, because we've got these two groups. One group that plays random games and tries to play as much as possible, the other which sticks to, like, storytelling, Pathfinder, and a few bigger games, but gravitates towards those more narrative ones. I think back in 2009, we tried using, like, fully narrative systems we we were like the rebels we didn't want <laughs> games with points we just wanted stuff on a character sheet and in the meantime i actually joined uh, the theater i acted for eight years as a regular actor uh, in a youth theater here yeah and one of my favorite role-playing groups was the theater staff absolutely so basically i talked the rest of the actors into playing with me it was actually awesome. Because of that, I stayed more into narrative because we started using actual improv theater into it. And I did more stuff and notes that improv theater is, in fact, LARP, role-playing light. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it's LARP, it's role-playing light. It's, yet it's not that because you've got prompts, you don't have characters. So, uh, and bring those things into together created a lot of stuff which I do myself. <laughs> And I would say I'm quite away from traditional gaming, but I really love crunchy games. And as the last time as we spoke, about 2012, we got into really, really light narrative games, basically, uh, with opposite roles. I honestly don't know why I never tried PBTA. We never tried. We, we looked and saw it. Okay, but there's something missing. I mean, at that time, we were mostly playing to scratch my edge for really crunchy games, Dark Heresy First Edition, and Fudge slash Gubs, something in between, and playtesting most of my stuff. My players hate playtesting, oh god. <laughs> That's also a mood. Yeah. Yeah, 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 because everything changed constantly. <laughs> And one moment when I joined Twitter in, I think, 2018, I was looking around and saw, like, I placed Domains then. Domains was already an eight years old game at that time. The the ideas remained the same, only a few little executive things changed. Uh, The dice mechanic didn't change, actually. That's the first thing which I started with. Yeah. But at the beginning, there were, like, skills, not approaches and aptitudes. But, okay, it it, it was the same thing. I was like, wow, everything's still close to D&D. It's D&D adjacent. Yeah, yeah. I was confused. Like, hell, because we played in a specific way. I've always thought that role-playing games are like this one big continuous thing. And if I'm playing this way, everybody's playing this way. And I came to twin- Twitter and saw people. It was just wild. I mean, uh, first time seeing Critical Role, uh, seeing Geek and Sandra and some others playing, I was like, okay, but we play like this for the past eight, ten years. Yeah. Which was, well... That was a revelation, to be honest. And last time we talked about uh, parallel evolutions, because at the same time, the narrative indie scene was forming in the US, which was also forming here. I mean, it was like four of us, but still. 
it's so interesting that it's evolved out of well not just out of um you playing D&D and you discovering fudge but it's also evolved out of this idea of Narazia in I'm sorry I've butchered the pronunciation of that but in Croatia and I'm like that's so cool <laughs> I love that that's that's part of the culture of the good gaming Honestly, I think I've grown since the 2009 till 2015 era by being on Twitter. Maybe I should have been before on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a painful place to hang out. But uh, all in all, I think that currently with everything that's happening, I am growing as a developer. And I'm kind of able to integrate both the uh, Anglosphere narration and narrative structure along with the SIA and Asian, which is quite awesome because I've been working with a lot of uh, SIA and Asian people about it and working in a way that incorporates that along with my own ways of looking at narration. And the best part is that I've learned that everything's tied to the language and the culture of the person writing. Yeah. So a big change was actually writing the Vrach system because I had to reinvent the whole tabletop role-playing game linguistical base for it. Everybody here plays, uh, we call it Kroglish. It's a mix of Croatian and English. Uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll sound really weird and butchered. I think most of you will get a little wee kick out of it, but I won't be talking about it. <laughs> and the trick here was that once I started reinventing it, I noticed that a few things are different and can be done differently. I mean, it's such an untapped potential having a game in a different language with different cultural values and different cultural meanings to specific words. Example, we don't use character. We use protagonist, somebody in a story, because a character is anybody. Yeah, that's that's really cool. What else did I notice? Uh, dice. Okay, dice. We don't have a word for dice. We have a word for cube. Right. Or six-sided die. Uh, cards are exclusive ballot cards. And there's a few things which you start noticing along with health. If you say health, it cannot be quantified. No. <laughs> That's not something that you can quantify. Yeah, and the concept of HP is weird. It is. You basically go to HP and say, hmm. So I'm trying to quantify something in quantifiable. Yeah, and our culture doesn't like abstractions. Okay. And that was one of the things. Okay, so I have to write a game that does away with abstractions to a point where I'm not only going to say I'm not abstract, I'm going to have to create an abstraction and teach everybody to use it. Now, that, that is a fun part, because last week we had our first Vraj session uh, with the official done rules and everything, and was just bloody hilarious, because the moment when and they realized that they have to carry their own narration, because it's, I won't say boy, it's just weird. Somebody jolts in and tells your story for you, which was weird for D&D example for me. And we don't have that. And a few other things which are basically, oh, wow, I can do this this way. And there's just eye opening. I think it's so interesting to compare different gaming culture. I kind of talked about this before with John Garrett about how British gaming culture was sort of permeated with wargaming um, rather than the American tradition, which is slightly different and is not rooted in storytelling. It's kind of rooted in something very subtly different. And what you're telling me is that the way that games are played in Croatia is, again, completely different. And as you said, it's just culture dependent. It's language dependent. It's honestly completely fascinating, and it sounds like somebody could write an enormously interesting PhD thesis about it. <laughs> I think they did. 
And you'll be interested to know that next the next couple of months on Yes Indeed Pod, we're interviewing like four or five, maybe six different um, creators from RPG SEA, and I'm hoping to get some some cool insights on like gaming culture in those those countries as well. Um, yeah, I think it would be interesting because I was asked yesterday. Uh, what I would say is the easiest way for somebody to decouple a pure Anglosphere uh, view on games. And I said, yeah, just listen. Buy games that are written by non-Anglosphere people. Uh, absolutely. Try to put yourself in their yeah, shoes. absolutely. And uh, that, that also touches on the uh, funding part, because once people start seeing that most of those games on the Kickstarter, okay, hats off, there are awesome non-Anglosphere games currently, because a few things, but it's still when you look at the pool of games that you have, they're still predominantly Anglosphere. And of those games, there are a few which are non-Anglosphere. I I know there's a lot of cry out for uh, appropriation and a few other things. Uh, It's a bit different here because we see such things as uh, I don't know, uh, most people will say, hey, Philip, sorry, I'm butchering the language. I'm like, no, 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 you're actually trying to learn it. Nice, thank you. Uh, people trying to make, uh, I don't know, Malinze or uh, Struckli, and then go like, yeah, I made my own spinner. Yeah, sure, cool. Um, it's a bit different mentality here as well. So I would say that's also valid and important. Uh, don't get me started on the mentality of buying stuff because I'm another big brand and this is just a joke and not even worth it to buy. That, that's the standpoint of people. Eastern standpoint, sorry. <laughs> Basically, middle. The Western standpoint is, yeah, it's not a finished game. So, there, there's a bit of that. And in the end, I think it's not one standpoint, but I think it's a bit of a trust thing. That everybody should have trust. Yeah. Let's say this. People should trust developers to be able to make that game. Uh, it's really dependent on trust, and it's hard to do because... We've seen all bad actors doing iffy things, but once people start trusting the developer, not requiring the developer to have some kind of legitimate uh, platform, we'll be able to crowdfund by basically going, yeah, look, I'm almost done with making my game. Here's my itch.io page. Anybody who likes, I need, I don't know, I calculated next time, I'll most likely need 1,500 euros to finish it a game in the complexity and sizes domains. So say, yeah, I need 1,500 euros. The game costs, what I know, 15 euros. And to be able to get 100 people to buy the game, that fund me instantly and wouldn't have a problem. Because in my opinion, now maybe I'm just wrong. Uh, and also I've learned a few things in the past two weeks. First and foremost, that people look at profit because apparently, I didn't know that, America has tax on profit, not tax on Mm, revenue, I think revenue is the English word. Uh, when you buy something, basically how tax works here. When you buy something, you pay for it. Tax is automatically applied. No questions asked. You, you, if you have profit or don't have profit, tax, tax is applied to everything you do. And I've heard a few people talking about how there's no, uh, money in TTRPGs because look, here's my calculations. We're basically just two dollars in the profits. Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. So you gained $400,000 and you paid out $400,000 to people on the project. That's success for me. That That's money because it's not about profit. It's about getting money to the people who do the games. And once we get to this part, I think it's, yes, exactly that. Once we get to the sustainability part, I think we are able to found games and even stop using 
crowdfunding platforms because at that moment people will come and take games because they will see a game being released they'll buy the game but that's just me maybe i'm wrong so i think that's your message here then really is uh what you're saying philip is um what you think people should do is give as much trust as possible in designers and make sure that you purchase games that are outside of your own linguistic and cultural experience and um, give them the money that you think they deserve and ultimately go out and buy your game because it's very nearly funded now. (laughs) But yes, but also, big important part, not only give them money that they deserve. No, if they demand X amount of cash, don't ask them why. Example, I could easily sell my games in PDF form and still have a comfy living by making the game of, let's say, 400 pages, fully illustrated and everything, go for 5 euros. Yes, absolutely. If somebody says, yeah, this price works for me, say, okay, I'll buy it. It, uh, And that's when itch is awesome. You think they deserve more tip, 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 oh god, please tip. Yeah. Buy twice. If Tipping culture on itch. Buy, is cool. buy the game for friends. Yes. Just, just reminded that a core real book set for Dungeons and Dragons is three books each going for 40 euros currently per book. That's 120 euros. If you think that some other indie game is worth it, give them 30, give them 40. You don't have to give them 120 euros. But tip. I think we're all underselling games and we should be like 50, 60 euros. Uh, in my opinion, now that I've been studying stuff a bit, games should be about the same cost as an AAA yeah, video game. Of course. I think that tabletop role-playing developers should be able to place the game for 50 euros a digital copy. Meaning that if you want a physical print, you get an option to pay, I don't know, I'm gonna blast and tell everybody a little secret, pay 10 euros more and get something that's more professional and more quality-wise better than, let's say, D&D. Not hard, but yes, uh, it's a low bar you're setting. <laughs> it is a low bar because I've seen it. I mean, I do it. My professor told me when I pitched him my domain's idea for offset print, because I'm not going to do anything besides offset, that if they offer me above three euros per book, they're ripping me off. But like tipping culture on itch.io is super, super important. And like behind every sale, that you tip on is a very, very excited and gleeful designer who feels validated and feels seen. And that's... I won't lie once. I I know which person I'm still... I'm so much grateful to them because somebody tipped me at the moment when domains was 7.5 euros. I saw somebody buying domains for 7 euros, refounded the game, and I was like heartbroken. A few seconds later, because when I still is, I manically checked the game and the same person because there was the same um, code. It was the same person. They bought the game, refunded, it, bought the game again and tipped. The game was sold for 60 euros. Oh, wow. Like, Holy smokes. That is an enormous my, market. Mine exploded. Wow. Wow, wow, yeah. wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I was like, I wanted to find out who the person was. And at one point, I realized something. It's unimportant. They valued my game enough to give me 60 euros. My my story is not as interesting as yours, but like when I first started putting games on Itch.io, somebody paid me well over the odds for one of my small, uh, one a game that I thought was small and unimportant, and actually I've just 
you know, made into something much bigger. And it was so validating and it was so affirming to see that people were willing to invest in. So it's amazing. So please go out and do that. <laughs> it means so much to us all. Now, I just want to say, if you do tip a lot, some people will like it if you say, hey, I like your game. I gave you a tip. And if you can't afford to tip, then leave a review because that's just as good. <laughs> Philip, would you like to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Yeah, basically, you can find me on Twitter at P. And due to a thing, I couldn't keep Alia, so I had to use Alia Publishing, but with just a fee. And also, I'm found on, fa- I'm found on Facebook. I'm not that much on Facebook anymore due to, yeah, platforms, creation, and stuff. Yeah. And I'm found on HEO. My HEO is odoalia-publishing.h.io. You can find my games there. Or you can just basically Google Domains for Role-Playing System. The SEO works fine and you should see my game first and foremost. Yes. And if you're listening and you haven't checked it out, please go and get it because it is a very, very good game. And thank you. Really honestly deserves your attention. I think it's so interesting. And coming from a point of view of somebody who does not play a lot of horror games, this is the one that I would play. <laughs> so I guess all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on yes indeed pod and talking to us all about how your experience of the scene is so completely different to everybody else's thank you thanks for listening and thanks again to philip for the interview as always you can find all of the links in the episode description next time i'll be interviewing jay stillerbeck jay made the better backstories cards which are an amazing resource for generating character backgrounds on the fly with depth, breadth, and interesting quirks that really make your characters feel real and interesting. Tune in in two weeks to find out more. This week, an advert from one of my outstanding Kickstarter backers. Check out Aether Operations by Adam Vass of World Champ Game Co., an unfolding RPG zine where you try to prevent the crumbling imbalance of reality by cleansing tainted relics and fighting violent creeps in a psychedelic landscape. A 7x5-inch scene that unfolds to a huge 19x27-inch poster adventure. Available for pre-order now at floatingchair.club. And please visit Floating Chair Club for Aether Operations and more World Champ games. Plus other RPGs, zines, pencils, games, tarot, and more weird vibes and miscellany. Use the code INDIE, that's I-N-D-I-E, for 10% off your first order. Once again, that's Floating Chair Club at floatingchair.club. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod. That's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. Intro music is by my amazingly talented friend Gemma Hooper, and the outro music and interstitials are from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thank you, Gemma and Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs>